recently came across a great headline uh, this week actually in the paper entitled the headline was The Incredible Sulk I thought that was quite clever although most couples in their married life have experienced from time to time long and awkward periods of silence after a row that's nothing compared to this Japanese couple who didn't talk to each other for 20 years. Let me, I'm going to read this. Otu and Katayama Yumi lived together with their kids and their silent relationship only came to light when their son, who was 18 years old, wrote into a TV show that he'd never heard his parents have a conversation. It would be funny if it wasn't so sad, wouldn't it? 20 years. I, th- I want to say to you, breakdown of family life is one of the saddest and hardest things we can experience. People not talking to each other for years because of something that happened in the past. And this is what? This is exactly what we're, what we're seeing in Genesis. There are three characters at this point in this drama. Let me uh, extract some images from the little film we watched a few years ago, a few, few weeks ago, years ago. First, the first group is brothers who are haunted by guilt. These thuggish brutes of brothers of Joseph, fueled by jealousy, really, sold their brother as a slave into Egypt and then lied to their dad that he'd been killed by a wild animal. They then spent, these guys then spent the next 20 years perpetuating that lie, haunted by shame and guilt and watching their poor dad grieve for his favorite son. And that brings us to Joseph the one who suffered the awful injustice of tragedy after tragedy. Not only did his brothers hate him and sell him as a slave, he then works for his master and his master's wife falsely accuses him of rape. He gets then thrown into prison. Even then, in prison, he kind of makes a name for himself as a guy who's got integrity. But even then, people forget him until... Much later, through, we saw last week all the dreams and he's raised to prominence as the Prime Minister of Egypt. If, if ever there was a guy in the Bible who suffered injustice like Joseph, I'm, I'm not sure. Awful, lonely, the, the, bearing the brunt of his brother's hatred. And then the third character is the dad who for 20 odd years lives with his Grief. We haven't heard about Jacob for a few weeks. If you've been coming the last few weeks, we haven't heard about Jacob. In, in a way, Genesis is like a Dan Brown novel. I don't, are you familiar with Dan Brown novels? And the, the, the cleverness in the story is that each chapter kind of moves part of the story forward, and then you're thinking, oh, what happens next? And then frustratingly, he goes to a different part of the story and moves that forward. What we've seen in the last few weeks is what happened to Joseph in Egypt. But the last time we met Jacob... 
He was inconsolable. Let me read to you what it says in chapter 37. Then Jacob tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, and he mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him. What a bunch of liars! His sons came to comfort him. But he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Jacob is really saying, I will never be happy again. His heart has been ripped out. And he's been silently grieving for Joseph for 20 odd years. And I think there's more than a hint that he is suspicious that these brutish sons of his have, have got something to do with it. This slide is a family that is in an utter mess. Would you agree? But remember too that this family, the characters you see here on this screen, represent the family of promise. God had promised Abraham that his descendants, these men, would become a great nation to bless the whole world. At this point, they're not even talking to each other. And the tension here in the narrative is that they can't be saved from famine until they are reconciled with one another. As we break into this next chunk of Genesis, here's the question I want you to get. The question we're confronted with here is, how? Used to be a TV show, that, in the 70s. How? Some of you are old enough might remember that. How? How is God's promise going to be fulfilled in this mess? How are we going to get from the guilt, the grief, and the injustice of what has happened in this family how are we going to move from a dysfunctional family to a united, happy, healthy family who are together in one place restored? That's the question that the narrative is asking us. How? I want to suggest to you that this is a story of reconciliation. And I, that, that matters to all of us, doesn't it? I'm sure you'd agree. This is a story of reconciliation. There are tears and dysfunctionality and breakdown now. And the process that we're going to see is long and painful and difficult. But at the end, there will be the sweetest and most incredible joy. When these characters are picked up, almost like a parcel by God and delivered into Egypt, embracing one another, smiling together, and looking forward to the future with hope. It is a miracle. How is that going to happen? Hey, but hey, let me just digress a minute. This little story here has a deeper significance. 
Because this story is part of a much bigger, larger story of reconciliation. That's why, we, that's why I asked Rob today to read from 2 Corinthians 5, where the great Apostle Paul describes his job as a pastor as what? He said, I have a ministry of reconciliation. His job, and in a sense, my job as a minister of a church is to tell you that the God of heaven wants to reconcile you to himself. How amazing is that? That was Paul's fuel in his life. Like these brothers, I want to suggest to you today that we too, I think, experience a kind of hauntedness when we are estranged and distant from God. Deep down in our hearts, I think we seem to know that we can't face him as we are. And yet the larger story of the Bible is that the God of the Bible is not some Father Christmas granddad figure in the sky. The God of the Bible is a God who wants you and I to know the exuberant joy of being reconciled to him. Now, to be clear, for reconciliation to take place in Genesis for these three different groups of characters, different things need to happen. Joseph needs to come to terms with how he's been treated so that he's not bitter. Jacob needs to have his hope revived because he's basically given up. But what I want to focus on this afternoon primarily is the story of the brothers. What needs to take place here for them? For them to move from being haunted by guilt to being able to embrace their dad, who they've deceived for 20 years, and their brother, who they sold into slavery. What process needs to happen for this family to be reconciled, given what they've done? I think, if, if you want my big idea, my big idea here is that the journey that these men make parallels or reflects something of the journey we all also need to make. This experience that they have here in this narrative is really a little picture in miniature of how a person can be reconciled to God. This is a picture of how someone can become a real Christian. This story here in Genesis is painful, but it is also hugely optimistic. And it's designed to be a reflection of what your story and my story can be because of God's grace. So, uh, here's, here's a title. We're going to think today about the road of reconciliation. And in, the, in these next four chapters, you may as well bed down for the night, in these next four chapters, I just want to very simply show you four steps along the road of reconciliation. Four steps. So turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 42. 
It's on page 47 in, the, in, the, in these red Bibles. I would really appreciate it if you do pick up one of the Bibles in the pews because we're going we're gonna to kind of fly over this narrative and I'm going to be dipping in and out. So if you can have it open, I can point out the verses and you can keep up with me and we'll enjoy looking at this story together. Page 47, Genesis 42. We begin with Jacob confronting his sons. Let's read just the first couple of verses to begin with. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I've heard that there's grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. These brothers seem to me quite indecisive. And Jacob sounds like a Yorkshireman to me. What are you doing sitting there looking at each other? Get off your backsides and go and find some grain, guys. They're all, I don't know, pussyfooting around. Jacob sounds like, sounds like a Yorkshireman. Go down there and buy some grain. The backdrop to this whole story, as you know, is a severe famine. And I just want to say this in passing. Never underestimate the fact that God, in his great wisdom, can sometimes use hard and difficult circumstances to make us think about what is really important. It takes a famine here. I don't think that's easy. These guys are in danger of starving to death. I'm reminded of, the, of a famous quote by C.S. Lewis. He said this, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It's very profound, that, isn't it? These guys need something to shake them. And these difficult circumstances do that. Let's just read verse 3 down uh, a little bit further. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel, Israel's, that's Jacob, another name for Jacob. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Notice that uh, ten brothers go. Presumably, the more brothers go, the more grain they can bring back. Ten bags is better than one bag, isn't it? But Jacob will not let Benjamin go, the youngest. Jacob had two wives. You, you remember the story. We don't need to recap it. Joseph and Benjamin were brothers, and they were both the son of the wife he loved. Joseph's gone. Benjamin is his new favorite. The only other son of his beloved wife, Rachel, she died in childbirth. So, after 20 years, 
these brothers make the exact same journey that Joseph had made when he was 17 years old. And never in their wildest dreams or worst nightmares did they ever think they would see Joseph again. Even if he was still alive, surely by now, 20 odd years later, we're told that Joseph was 30 when he became the prime minister. So 13 years there, then there's been seven years of abundance, and now there's been a little bit of famine. So we're talking over 20 years here. Even if Joseph was still alive, surely he would be some anonymous slave in an obscure house somewhere. And besides, surely these brothers are anonymous in a vast sea of people flooding into Egypt, desperate and hungry for food. Let's read on. Verse 6. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, a person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? He asked. From a land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You've come to see where our land is unprotected. Just notice that the brothers here unwittingly fulfill the dream that Joseph has had 20 odd years before. You remember when he dreamt of the sheaves bowing down? And here is the fulfillment of that very dream. They don't recognize him. His beard is shaved off in the Egyptian style. He's clothed with his Egyptian robes. He's no longer a teenager. He's been accustomed to being in charge of other men. But Joseph recognizes them immediately. And I think it's interesting in verse 9 that it says that Joseph remembered his dreams. It could say there, Joseph remembered the time that they'd thrown him in a pit and sold him off into slavery and he was ready to kind of give them... It says he remembered the dreams. I, I think it must have become clear to Joseph that the dreams he had had meant that one day he would see his family again. And as he's elevated to become the prime minister, I think it must have begun to dawn on him that they were going to come to Egypt. I think even more so when a famine begins to occur, the famine explains what their motive would be in coming to Egypt. And I, I think this is not for Joseph a moment of revenge. You could understand that. I think this is a moment of fulfillment. I think this is possibly something that Joseph has been expecting. This is the beginning of this family's salvation. But Joseph is a shrewd customer, and he knows that reconciliation is not possible at this point until certain things 
are clear. Put yourself in Joseph's shoes. Can he trust them? Joseph knows that some of these boys are violent. Some of them, in, back in chapter 34, committed premeditated genocide. I don't think Joseph can trust them until he knows that they're trustworthy. Secondly, Joseph must be thinking, when I had a dream, I'm sure it was all my brothers that bowed down. Where's Benjamin? Is he still alive? If they've treated me badly, maybe they've been cruel and spiteful to him. And how's his dad? Is his dad still alive? Does his dad know what they've done? So in this moment, Joseph has the wisdom and the restraint to not immediately embrace them, but to try and seek some answers to those questions. Let's read on and let the narrative speak for itself. Verse 10, Joseph accuses them of being spies. And in verse 10, No, my lord, they answered, Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them, You've come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph now knows his father's alive, his brother's alive. Joseph said to them, it's just as I told you, you are spies. And this is how you will be tested. And get this for a clever plan. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your younger brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison. So that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then as surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. He makes them sweat, doesn't he? On the third day, on reflection, Joseph has a change of plan. Joseph said to them, do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest man, let one of your brothers stay here in prison, while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me so that your words may be verified and that you may not die. And this they proceeded to do. I think this is a, I think on reflection for Joseph, this is a mercy. I think Joseph realizes that if, if all of them stay in prison, he sends one brother back. There's a whole family of people in Canaan who are starving. So he kind of changes his plan and says, one of you can stay and the other nine can go. That means they can take more grain. So there's a mercy in that. But I think this is really a test that replicates, in a way, what they'd done to Joseph. Are these brothers still the kind of guys that will grab their freedom and abandon Simeon? 
The first step on the road to reconciliation is a painful one because it involves facing up to the wrong that they'd done. I want you to see three components to this. And the first one is in the very next verses. Let's pick up in verse 21. They recognize the parallels between now and 20 years earlier because they begin to fall out with one another. They said to one another, surely we are being punished because of our brother. And listen, imagine how it felt for Joseph to hear these words. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life. But we would not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replied, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, but you wouldn't listen? Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They didn't realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. Joseph turned away from them and began to weep. But then he came back and spoke to them again and had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. Oh, how poignant for them to talk together and to be blaming one another and for Joseph to be hearing. It moves him so deeply that he actually begins to cry. The point here is, I think, that Joseph is beginning to see that they know something of the guilt of what they've done. They are beginning to sense the gravity of what they've done. And Joseph has Simeon bound in front of them. Can you imagine Joseph watching, eagle-eyed, to see whether there's sympathy in their eyes for Simeon or whether they're thinking, leave him. It's very clever on Joseph's part. Joseph then arranges, in the next few verses, for all of their cash to be put back into their individual sacks of grain. We won't read the verses, but this, this becomes now a test of loyalty. But with the added spice that they get their cash as well. Will they pocket the cash, take the grain home, and then tell lies to their dad that Simeon's been killed somehow. I want you to notice verse 28. When they find the silver on the way home, it says at the end of verse 28, their hearts sank and they turned to each other trembling and said, what is this that God, what is this that God has done to us? There's a second component here. Not only do they acknowledge their guilt, but in their dark and guilty imaginations, they are beginning to sense that if God were to punish them, that would be only fair. It would only be what they've deserved. I think at this point they remind me do you remember the two criminals who were crucified with Jesus? 
and the, one of them is cursing, and the other one shouts across as they're both hanging there dying. He shouts to the other one and says, Don't you fear God? We are criminals. We're getting what our deeds deserve. This man has done nothing wrong. These guys are not only acknowledging their guilt, that's an important step, but to accept that if God punished me, it would only be fair. That's a far deeper level. But there's a third component. When these boys get home, they have to explain to Jacob what they've done and what's happened. When they get home and explain things to their dad, Jacob, his reaction is predictable enough, I think. Think about this. The silver's there, but Simeon isn't. And this dad, who has maybe long harbored the suspicion that these brutes of sons have had something to do with Joseph's disappearance, he's thinking, what on earth are these guys up to? Why are my kids such thieves and thugs? Why do I feel like I can't trust them as far as I could throw them? And so his painful speech pours out in verse 36. Their father Jacob said to them, You've deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin too? Everything is against me. And then in verse 38, Jacob said, My son will not go down with you. His brother is dead and he's the only one left. If harm comes to him on the journey you are taking, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in sorrow. Listen, this too is part of this process. These sons are beginning to see something of their father's grief. There's nothing they can do. Reuben makes this pathetic, guilty offer to sacrifice his own two sons. What good will that do? The problem the brothers have here is that Jacob, their dad, doesn't trust them. And they can hardly come clean, can they? Dad, it's okay. We didn't sell Simeon. This really did happen. We did sell Joseph, though, sorry. They can't come clean. There's nothing they can say or do to comfort their dear old dad. It's as if they've killed him with grief. And in the grip of this great famine, these brothers are being forced to confront their past. Circumstances conspire to make them face the truth of what they've done. Some of these guys are brutes with hard, violent, selfish hearts. But they're beginning to see something of what they are. Listen, how far is this from our modern culture? If these brothers live now, we would send them to therapy. If we feel guilty about anything, we're told, put it out of your mind. 
Anything that makes us sad is assumed to be bad. I want to tell you, there's a place for this kind of experience. If we are on the road to reconciliation, it is hard and painful, but necessary. Do you remember John Newton wrote in the famous hymn, Amazing Grace? There's a line in that hymn. Have you ever understood this line? He's writing from personal experience as a bit of a brute himself. And he wrote in that hymn, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to what? Fear. We assume that fear is bad. But friends, there is a fear that is good fear that is the beginning of recovery and it's fueled by the grace of God. This kind of fear is the necessary preparation for forgiveness that is authentic. Their growing sense of guilt and fear and sorrow was totally appropriate. This is a sign that they're waking up. So don't be too quick to dismiss this kind of fear. I'm not saying, of course, that what these brothers did, we've all done. But the parallel is still true that we are all guilty of sin before God. And it may be that the Lord is being gracious to you. And gently leading you to see something of your own self more clearly. Joseph's aim here wasn't to humiliate or to crush them, but to bring them to the point where their reconciliation was authentic. And so too, sometimes, one of the first things that God does in a person's life is to convict them and to teach them this kind of fear. I want to suggest to you that in this sense, God is like a good doctor who wants us to understand an accurate diagnosis so that he can then relieve us with the cure that we need. And this can mean, and some of you maybe struggle with this, this can mean that even the gospel itself, to begin with, sounds like bad news before it can become the good and sweet news that it really is. Hey, but this is only step one. They had to face the wrong they'd done. We need to rattle on. What a stalemate there is here. Let's move on. Joseph wants Benjamin in Egypt. Jacob is determined to keep him in Canaan. Some commentators think that this standoff may have lasted for a couple of years. They had a lot of grain, didn't they? <laughs> so, but eventually the grain's gone. And Jacob breaks the silence in chapter 43 and verse 1. Go back. 
Verse 2, sorry. Go back and buy us a little more food. Judah, who is gradually being affected by all of this, he makes a very powerful speech. We haven't got time to go into that, but Jacob reluctantly agrees to let Benjamin go, and he prays more than he knows in verse 14. Just look with me. He prays, May God Almighty grant you mercy before this man, that's Joseph, so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. He prays for mercy. He prays more than he knows, doesn't he, there? And so begins a second epic journey back to Egypt. But this time, this little group of hobbits, it's like Lord of the Rings, isn't it? They have Benjamin with them. They have a whole sack full of gifts to give. And they're taking double the amount of silver First of all, to pay back the silver that they don't know how they got back in their sacks the first time. And new silver to pay for new grain this time. And off they go. In this next section, I want you to see something very strange. Step one. They had to face, to some degree, the wrong that they'd done. Now that they've begun to grasp something of that... And remember, this has been marinating within them for two years, maybe. What they now need is the opposite of this. I want to suggest to you that they need now, as we do too, to realize and to grasp the possibility of hope. They need to sense that there's a way out. They need to see that even though what they've done was terrible, there's hope. Things can be different. Recovery is possible. In this next section, in this second journey, Joseph lavishes unexpected kindness on these brothers. Let's uh, read from verse 16. Chapter 43, you still with me? That's not very promising. I think you are still with me. Chapter 43, verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, take these men to my house, slaughter an animal and prepare a meal. They are to eat with me at noon. The man did as Joseph told him and took the men to Joseph's house. Now the men were frightened when they were taken to his house. They thought we were brought here because of the silver that was put back into our sacks the first time. He wants to attack us and overpower us and seize us as slave and take our donkeys. When they arrive in Egypt, the steward is told to intercept them and take them to Joseph's own house. In our house, you can imagine what the laundry is like in our house. Lots of people live in our house. And if someone has a particularly bad stain on their clothes, whether it's a grassy stain on a knee or a bit of red wine on a shirt... It'll go to laundry and Jane will say, that needs special treatments. That needs special treatments, that does. I don't know what that involves. It's like magic. And their clothes come back clean. She, She knows what she's doing. When these guys land in Egypt, Joseph says to the steward, take them to my house, 
And they're thinking, we're going to get special treatments. We don't know what that looks like, but it doesn't sound good. Special treatments. They're terrified. And in verses 19 and onwards, these, these guys develop a kind of verbal diarrhea or something. So they went up to Joseph's steward and spoke to him at the entrance to the house. You can imagine their fear. We beg your pardon. Oh Lord, they said, we came down here the first time to buy food. But at the place where we stopped for the night, we opened our sacks and each of us found his silver. The exact weight in the mouth of his sack. So we brought it back with us. We've also brought additional silver with us to buy food. We don't know who put the silver in our sacks. You can see what he's doing. He's terrified. Please don't kill us. Please don't hurt us. We're, we're honest, honest. And the steward says to them, do you know what he says to them in Hebrew in verse 23? He says to them in their own language, Shalom. It's all right. Don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, your father Jacob, who you've been lying to for 20 years, has given you treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. And then he brought Simeon out to them. Man, they must have thought it was Christmas Day all at once. So here's the next step in their journey. To their fear of punishment is added the hope of kindness. What a strange combination. This is that they go in and there's the most beautiful hospitality, water to wash with, a chance to relax together. Joseph, Joseph comes out. They present their gifts and this fierce, strange, Egyptian Lord speaks kindly to them in verse 27. He asked them how they were. And then he said, how's your aged father that you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, your servant, our father is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son, he asked, is this your youngest brother? The one you told me about? And he said to Benjamin, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he'd washed his face, he came out and controlling himself said, Serve the food. The road to reconciliation is well on the way. This family is almost together. Joseph is so full of compassion, but he isn't finished yet. Two things to notice the food is served, and in verse 34, Benjamin gets supersized. Benjamin's portion was five times as much as anyone else's. How about that? <laughs> five times as much as anybody else's. Do you know what Joseph's doing there? They killed Joseph because his father gave him a nice coat and they hated it. Have these brothers changed? Let's supersize Benjamin and watch how they react. Are they going to be, he's got more than me? Why have I not got as much as him? 
Secondly, they realize that they've been seated in age order in verse 33. What on earth is going on? Who is this guy? But the beauty is seen in the simple description in the last verse there. There's no animosity. There are no harsh words. They feasted and drank freely. For the first time in the book of Genesis, for the first time in their lives maybe, they're feasting as one. Their fear of reprisal is fading. The hope of everything being okay is rising. But Joseph isn't finished. And neither am I. Can you see the danger? The road to reconciliation is long, but if it ended here, it would be a cul-de-sac. Why? They needed to face what they'd done. They needed somehow to be sustained by the hope of recovery. The danger is this. As this hope rises, it could imply that what they've done in the past doesn't matter anymore. These brothers could be sitting here feasting and drinking freely and thinking, oh man, that was a close shave, wasn't it? We were really frightened. We were imagining all kinds of nasty special treatments. But phew. We, we, didn't, we need not a sweated, guys. I, I actually think we've got away with it. Do you see? To fear punishment and then to be relieved that you got away with it does not necessarily change the heart. It is possible that they could know all of this and yet still remain brutish in their hearts. Maybe they're just glad they didn't get caught. Listen, in relation to us and God, I, I think some people stop at step one. They hear God's voice and they cannot bear to face any sense of conviction and so they in denial I don't want to feel bad I, some people do understand at step one but then they stop at step two they do understand their true condition but they have this vague sense that God is merciful and kind and so they hope that God will be nice to them in the end and everything will turn out okay and so they stop at step two with this kind of vague hope but with hearts that are not necessarily changed Joseph is very wise here he knows that this is not over yet and the third step then on the road to reconciliation is this. They needed to demonstrate that they'd really changed. And so comes the final test. Bleary-eyed the next morning, as they're no doubt recovering from their hangovers from the previous day's feasting, Joseph's up early. And he says to the steward, he says to the steward, his name might have been Stuart, hide your silver cup 
in Benjamin's sack. So this time it's not the silver, it's one cup in Benjamin's sack. And he lets them go. The brothers leave. How good they must have felt. Let's have a little recap. They've got Simeon. They have Benjamin. They have their original silver that they brought back, that the steward let them keep. They've got sacks that are bursting to overflowing with two lots, with, with grain. They've effectively had, uh, they call it a bog-off offer, don't they? Buy one, get one free. They've had two sacks of grain for one lot of silver. How light their hearts must have been as they head home. Happy days! Little do they know the hardest part is still to come. Remember that what Joseph wants to know is have their hearts changed? The steward catches them up. One by one their sacks are opened from the oldest to the youngest. And horror of horrors, Benjamin has the silver cup in his sack. How on earth did it get there? All the brothers have to troop back to face an angry Joseph. And in verse 17 of chapter 44, he cleverly gives them the final test. Judah had offered for all the brothers to become slaves. But in verse 17, Joseph said, Far be it from me to do such a thing. Only the man who was found to have the cup will become my slave. The rest of you, go back to your father in peace. Do you see what Joseph's doing? Their crime over 20 years ago had been against Joseph, the favorite son, and they had treated their dear father disgracefully. Now they're faced with exactly the same choice. They can flee and abandon the favorite brother and bring pain and sorrow and grief again to their dear old dad. Joseph is on red alert here. What will these brothers do? And Judah steps up and he makes the most powerful speech you will ever hear. It's actually the longest speech in the whole book of Genesis. And so let's read it all to get the emotion of it. Verse 18. Judah went up to Joseph and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And we answered, We have an aged father, and there's a young son born to him in his old age. His brother is dead. And he's the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little more food. But we said, we cannot go down. Only if our youngest brother is with us will we go. We cannot see the man's face unless your younger, our youngest brother is with us. 
Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces. And I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too, and harm comes to him, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with the boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the grey head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back to you, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all my life. Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy isn't with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Do you see what's going on here? Judah even uses Jacob's favoritism as an argument. They've been so jealous of all of this in the past. Now he uses the love of Jacob for Benjamin as his primary argument. Now Joseph knows that his brothers have changed. Judah's speech shows that they love their dad. Judah's speech shows that they love their brother. One writer says this, 22 years earlier, Judah stood with his brothers and silently watched when the blooded tunic they had brought to Jacob sent their father into a fit of anguish. Now he's willing to do anything in order not to have to see his father suffer that way again. For Joseph, reconciliation is now possible. They faced what they did. They sensed the hope of restoration and they don't take it for granted. Their hearts have changed. Everything's different now. This now is a family fit to be a nation. Judah, a man fit to become a king. Chapter 45 and verse 1, Joseph could no longer control himself. 25 years or so of hurt mingled with forgiveness and a conscience of God's overarching presence in it all. This isn't Joseph's calculated logic speaking here. This is the passion of his heart. Everything that God has taught him in 20 years in his pain comes flowing out like a torrent of forgiveness to wash away their shame and guilt. And it's built on the foundation of God's sovereign, loving control over their lives. Joseph says to his staff, get out, get out. And he bursts into tears. His emotion is palpable. You meant it for harm. But God has done all of this to save our family and bring us together as one. Hey, did I say there were four steps? That's three. The fourth step. They had to embrace forgiveness. 
In verse 3, initially, the brothers are stunned and terrified. Joseph weeping, embracing Benjamin, kissing and weeping with his brothers. Did you ever see such a glorious picture of wrong being put right? And reconciliation that is meaty and real and authentic. I'll tell you what, someone should make a musical out of this story. The road to reconciliation ends right here. And the transformation of these brothers is complete as they step into the forgiveness that Joseph offers God has given his grace to Joseph to see the big picture and overcome his potential bitterness. He's given grace to these brothers who are totally transformed. And just a little word about Jacob. Chapter 45, just down towards the end there, verse 25. They went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him Joseph was still alive. In fact, he's the ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the cart Joseph had sent to carry him back, listen to this, the spirit of their father revived. And Israel, Jacob said, I'm convinced my son Joseph is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. Isn't that an amazing story? Listen, they, they were done. The more glorious story here is the story of God reconciling a sinful world to himself in Christ. My question for you as we finish is, can you sense God at work in your own heart in these four areas? If I'm going to be reconciled to God... I need to be aware of my own sin. I need to trust in the kindness of Jesus held out for me in the gospel. There needs to be a genuine desire to change and not play at it. And I need to step into and embrace the forgiveness that God gives. This, friends, is what it means to be a real follower of Jesus Christ. Let me read to you as we close. The verses that Rob read to us at the beginning, 2 Corinthians 5. Let's read these verses, perhaps with a fresh understanding. The Apostle Paul could say, We are therefore Christ's ambassadors. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore you on Christ's behalf be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As God's fellow workers, we urge you not to receive God's grace in vain. For he says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. Friends, now, today, this afternoon, 
this very moment be reconciled to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your amazing word. We thank you for these stories that are so full of meaning, so human, so realistic. We thank you for the amazing reconciliation that took place in this broken family. But we thank you that it points us to a bigger reconciliation. I pray, Father, that your word would come with power to every person's heart and that we would see our need, that we would see our hope, that we would genuinely want to follow Christ and change and that we would embrace the forgiveness you offer to us because of the cross where Jesus died for our sins. Our Father, bless us with your word. Help us to believe it and to obey it. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen.